On behalf of RBCS, welcome to today's webinar, Fully Leverage Agile Test Automation. I'm Rex Black, president of RBCS. We are a worldwide testing and quality assurance firm serving clients ranging from small startups to Fortune 20 global enterprises. Since 1994, we have delivered insight and confidence to hundreds of clients around the world. Our team of international consultants deliver customized training, consulting, and expert services to companies that are looking to improve their test and quality assurance practices. I'm the author of many books on software testing, as well as being the past president of the ISTQB. Attendance at today's webinar earns PMI PDUs. Thank you very much, Rex Price, for reviewing the materials for PDU status and for making valuable suggestions. You will receive an email telling you how to claim PDUs, including the PDU code. PDUs are available for live webinar attendance only. If you have any questions during the course of the webinar, submit them at any time. But please note that I answer them only at the end. Hope you enjoy this free webinar from RBCS. We do these free webinars as a service to the software testing community because at RBCS, we are a not just for profit company. If you enjoy our free webinars and feel that they demonstrate solid insights into the kind of testing challenges you face, please make RBCS your preferred software testing vendor for any and all expert services, consulting, or training. We're happy to provide a quote for any such help you might need. Contact us at info at rbcs-us.com. So, let's talk about fully leveraging the various opportunities that are available to you with test automation in the uh, world of agile development, and there are many. So, uh, this quote from Archimedes here, give me a place to stand and a lever long enough and I will move the world, may sound hyperbolic, uh, but it is indeed true that uh, uh, leverage is, a, is an amazing thing. It amplifies the uh, power of uh, a person, which is a pretty good metaphor for test automation because test automation and test tools of various kinds have the effect of amplifying the uh, power of the uh, people involved in creating the automated tests and using the tools. So leverage is indeed the right word here. Um, and in Agile, um, automation is very important. You're dealing with a substantial amount of regression risk in Agile due to the uh, ongoing changes to the um, software as the sprints proceed. But on the upside, uh, there are a lot of... Uh, opportunities out there that you can take advantage of, a lot of tools, and many of them are free. So this webinar is designed to open your eyes to some of these opportunities that you have so that you can ask yourself the question that you see here in the middle of the slide, how well are you using the leverage that's available to you in uh, automation, in your Agile implementation? Um, I was inspired to put this presentation together because what we found with a lot of our clients is that they actually are not taking advantage of the full value of test automation in their, in their Agile implementations. There's stuff they're missing. So this webinar is going to uh, make you more familiar with various types of uh, test automation that can uh, help you uh, reduce 
the costs associated with uh, failures by finding bugs pre-release, and ideally pre-formal testing, and even get it into the unit test and uh, development stages. And the sooner you find the bugs, the less they cost. Uh, that will have the effect of accelerating your schedules. And also, since you'll be able to hand off, if you take advantage of the things I'm talking about here, you'll be able to hand off the regression testing to uh, automated tests. Uh, you can focus your uh, manual test efforts on other areas, so you'll be able to cover more. So um, there's a technical piece to this, and you got to have the right technical skills to take advantage of these tools. And you also, uh, there's a business piece. And so you also need to understand the business case and know how you're going to achieve a high return on investment, ROI, on your test automation. So the first thing that's important to understand is that if you are not taking advantage of automation, of static testing, using things like static analysis tools, white box testing using things like code coverage and unit test automation tools, and black box testing, things like, say, BDD, ATDD, um, using Selenium for automation of your GUI. If you're not taking advantage of those three things, um, you're definitely not fully leveraging the opportunities. Now, you might still be missing some opportunities, but it's possible to say right off the bat that if you're not doing at least one of each of those three kinds of test automation in, in your Agile implementation, you're missing out on some opportunities. You should really be doing a mix of multiple types of uh, testing, multiple tools uh, in each of those three uh, broad categories of test types, static, white box, and black box. Now, another thing that's very important to keep in mind, you do not have to have a big, fat, tool budget or automation budget to take advantage of a lot of this stuff. There's a lot of open source stuff out there. You could build your own too. So sure, there's commercial stuff. Some of the commercial stuff is quite good. And we have clients that are using commercial tools and they're happy with them. Uh, but we have clients that are using open source tools that are very happy with them. And we have clients that have implemented their own custom testing tools and are happy with that. So lots of options here. We'll look at them. Now, an important thing to keep in mind is that when we talk about automated testing, well, we're really only we're only automating part of the testing process. We're not automating the entire testing process. You're automating the submission of inputs and the capture of the actual results, comparison of the actual results, the expected results, and the logging of that comparison. That's typically what's happening. So there's a lot of work that has to happen before that and a lot of work that has to happen after that. But um, uh, that's not to say that you can't get some really good benefits out of automation. Just remember that when people approach this too simplistically and say, yay, automation means that we're going to automate our tests and we won't need any testers, that's not the way to think about it. So part of doing this right, getting the solid benefits that you can get out of successful test automation is making sure that Everybody's got proper expectations of what can be accomplished and that uh, there's a solid business case um, and you know how to work towards achieving that business case. You do have to be careful 
it is possible to get yourself into a great deal of trouble with uh, automation. We see it all the time. There's uh, various ways to uh, have the the, uh, the test automation um, process uh, wag the uh, uh, test process dog effectively. Um, so uh, there are a number of, of, of mistakes and pitfalls. We're not going to go into those in too much detail here. I've covered those in previous webinars, which you can find out on our uh, website and also on uh, the RBCS YouTube channel. And if you don't know where that is, I will show you the coordinates for that on the last slide during the Q&A session. <coughs> so because this ROI is so important, let's start there. Okay. Um, this slide shows an example, and this is a purely made up example, but I, but I want you to understand the, the uh, uh, idea here. Um, that you, you would need to do yourself in order to uh, uh, understand your ROI. Now, the, the, the example that's given on this slide is based on the idea that you are trying to achieve a return on investment, an ROI, um, associated with reducing the total amount of effort required to mitigate regression risk. And... Um, by reducing that amount of effort, possibly uh, wanting to accelerate schedule. So if the if the desired ROI is reduced cost and or reduced schedule time required for uh, regression testing, this is the this is the model to use. Now, if your ROI, if the business goal is something else, then your ROI is going to be um, you're going to need to measure your ROI in a different way. Um, so if you look at the figure on the uh, right of the slide, what you see is that we are comparing the average cost of developing, executing, and maintaining tests, manual versus automated. Okay, so white box, manual, red box, automated. And what you can see is that we are investing on average $90 per automated test, right? $10 cost, the average cost to develop a manual test, $100 is the average cost to develop an automated test, so $90 is the investment being made. Now, we want to get that back by repeating the tests. And if we ignore the maintenance, bars for a moment, and we just look at the, the execution bars, you can see that it costs $50 on average to execute a manual test, $25 to execute an automated test. So every time we execute the automated test, it saves us $25. So we execute the automated test four times, that's four times 25 is 100, so we get our $100, or $90 back, excuse me, with $10 return. Now, you can't ignore the maintenance because maintenance is one of the big issues here. So let's look at that third set of bars there. Now, what we see is that when we have to maintain the tests, the manual test, it costs $10 to maintain it, which is basically the same cost as initially developing it, notice, um, whereas for the automated test, it costs 30 So it's $20 more to maintain the automated tests. Um, 
In this case, if every time the tests are to be run, we have to expend that amount to maintain, then we only save $5 per execution, not 25 and it takes us 18 repetitions of the test to break even. That's not good. So um, it's important that you look at ways of reducing the frequency of maintenance and also looking at ways of reducing the costs of maintaining the tests. In addition, you want to look at ways to reduce the cost of executing the tests, and a lot of that is eliminating what are called flaky tests and what are called uh, false positives. So flaky test is a test that sometimes passes, sometimes fails, and when it fails, it should, it's not because of a problem in the software that it's testing. It's because of some sort of intermittent issue, timing issue, something like that in the test itself. So flaky tests are bad because they cause you to have to waste time on analysis of meaningless test results. Uh, false positives are where the test fails, but the problem is actually with the test itself or the expected result or the way the environment was set up. There again, there's wasted time. So um, you want to look at ways of, of reducing the, the average cost of executing the tests, the automated tests, and also the frequency and cost of maintaining the tests. Do not look for ways to reduce the average cost of developing the test because most of those shortcuts will end up boomeranging on you and causing you to um, have higher costs of executing and maintaining the test in the long run. Now, of course, in order for us to have this to have any value, it's important that you um, have a real honest-to-God need to repeat the tests. So don't just automate things and run them over and over again just because you can't. Okay, so now with that basic concept of, of uh, business case and return on investment in hand, uh, let's look at uh, some different options um, for uh, fully leveraging test automation in your Agile uh, world. Uh, what are some of the different tools that uh, you can uh, take advantage of? So almost all of our clients that have what I would consider to be a mature and successful Agile implementation have a continuous integration framework set up. I say almost all. I've, I've run across one or two exceptions. There are always exceptions to these things, but almost all of them have that in some form or another. And most of them are using either Jenkins or Hudson. Um, a few are using some sort of homebrew um, system that they've set up. Some of them are really old school and they're still using a pure ant cruise control approach just because it works and they've had it forever. But almost all of them have some sort of... Um, continuous integration, and a lot of those uh, take advantage of at least the the hooks that are in Jenkins and Hudson for integrating uh, automated testing tools, uh, especially unit testing. A lot of them have unit testing. Not so many take advantage of the other opportunities, which I'll discuss. But I would say that this is this is sort of your your, your ticket, your entry ticket, that uh, if you are not um, doing continuous integration, that that significantly reduces the value that you're going to be able to get from a lot of these other things that I'm going to talk about. So even though continuous integration itself is not, strictly speaking, a test tool, it's a foundation upon which a lot of test tools build. 
It also does something really nice for you in the testing world in that it reduces the possibility or reduces the likelihood of bad, untestable builds, especially if there's some solid unit testing integrated in it. And it makes the build process faster, so you can get builds more frequently. Now, there is such a thing as too frequently, and I have had clients tell me about situations where the builds were automatic and they auto-deployed and um, auto-deployed into test environments at not entirely predictable times and caused uh, disruptions to testing. So you want to be careful when you set these things up that the process of deploying the builds into the test environment is one that does not disrupt ongoing tests. Now, not all of our clients take advantage of this, but you really should. Um, static code analysis. So there are plenty of options out there. One of the things that we sometimes hear people say is, well, we can't do static code analysis on our code because there aren't tools for that. Mm, you know, a lot of times you just haven't looked hard enough if that's what you think. Um, there are a lot of these static analysis tools out there, and a lot of them support multiple languages. So um, this is a really smart thing to build into your continuous integration framework as well as putting it on the developer's desktop so that they can do static code analysis while they're writing their uh, code. Um, now the idea here is that the static code analysis not only is going to result in more readable and maintainable code, it's also going to find a whole bunch of incipient bugs that um, can be taken out pretty much immediately upon being put in before anybody else sees them and before anybody's affected by the failures. So really, really economical. And it also, by, by the way in which it works, by giving rapid feedback to the programmer on the quality or quality problems of their code, uh, it helps to teach them to write better code. So it's, it's really a, a, a underexploited best practice. Now there's open source stuff, SonarCube, Splint, are out there, open source, free. Um, we have a lot of clients that are using the commercial static tools like Clockwork and Fortify. Um, I when I when I hear about that, I usually don't get into this question because it's generally not entirely within my bailiwick. But um, I'm always tempted to ask, did you actually look at the open source options before you spent all that money on the commercial tools? Um, so, you know, I would say that's something to consider, you know, when you're looking at this, let's make sure that you look at open source tools too, because, um, there, some of them are quite good. I've heard a lot of very good things about SonarCube. Um, now another thing is definitely underexploited is complexity analysis. Excessive complexity definitely contributes to unmaintainable code. Um, Excessive complexity is usually measured using something called the McCabe Cyclomatic Complexity Metric. There are open source as well as commercial tools for this. Um, so that's something else that you should uh, you should look at. Um, trying to keep the complexity low. The general rule of thumb is is less than ten branches or loops. Um, well, branching or looping constructs. Um, 
will uh, aid in terms of the readability and maintainability of the code. Now, of course, if you're a tester and you're listening to this, you might say, well, this sounds all really great. Um, can I get involved? Yes, you absolutely can, but you have to understand the programming languages that are being used because the output of these tools uh, really requires that you, uh, that, that you know how programming works and that you can read the code. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, um, one mistake, classic mistake, that organizations make when they use these tools is that they do these instead of code reviews. And that's a goof. Um, what you want to do is do these before code reviews. Do the static analysis, be static code analysis before the code review. That way, when you put the code, when the programmer puts the code in front of his peers for them to review it, it's they've all he is already he or she has already removed most of the kind of low hanging fruit from a defect point of view. So that won't be there to distract anybody during the review, and people can really focus on things like the underlying design, the underlying algorithms, and so forth. But static code analysis tools by themselves are not very good at doing that, of course, because they have no way of knowing what you're actually trying to accomplish. Right? Those of you who took computer science at the university like I did, you can remember perhaps the reason for that, why you cannot write a general purpose tool that is able to um, solve any uh, problem for uh, any any type of problem posed in front of it. And in, or, in order to make a static analysis tool that could read the code and give suggestions on better design given the problem being solved, um, that violates some principles of computability. So you want to have that kind of reviewing done by people. Okay, unit testing. I got to say, um, I have my concerns with Agile over the years, um, not so much with Agile as the intention, but rather with Agile in terms of the way that I've seen it implemented and the way that it has affected some of my clients and their testing. I think there's been some organizations make a lot of rookie mistakes sometimes with implementation of Agile that can be detrimental to testing groups. But one of the things that I've really loved about Agile from the start is the emphasis on unit testing, um, getting programmers to think about um, properly unit testing their code. And as I said, what we see is a lot of our clients that uh, they're using continuous integration framework and they're not only having their developers create unit tests, but those unit tests end up in the continuous integration framework, which is great. Um, usually what we see is what's sometimes called the X unit family of tools, CPP unit, J unit, so forth. These things are everywhere for everything. I, I a few years ago, a couple, actually a couple of years ago, I was doing an assessment for a client. They were doing SAP, which uses some language, I don't know, CBAP or something like that. I can't, I can't remember. It was some sort of weird algorithm or weird acronym for the, the programming language that it used. And they were, and somebody told me, oh, we can't do that kind of unit testing because there's no X unit framework. Well, I went off onto the internet five minutes later, I found that there was indeed a, a variant of the X unit framework for the SAP programming language. It's everywhere. Um, 
There are commercial tools for this out there. Parasoft, for example, makes one, but I think for the most part, these have been driven out by the open source tools. Now, um, we do have some clients that talk about using test-driven development as part of their unit testing. Um, certainly, what exactly is meant by test-driven development varies quite a bit. The classic concept of test-driven development is explained by Kent Beck in his book on extreme programming. Um, some people do that, but for the most part, I think what, we've, what we're seeing is that uh, people are writing the code and the unit tests more or less at the same time. The tests are not necessarily written first. Uh, there are some people that have very strong feelings about this. I'm not one of them. Um, to me, as long as the developers are actually creating unit tests, whether those unit tests get written before, during, or after the code is written is not really my lookout. Now, it's good if you're going to do unit testing to also be augmenting that with code coverage tools. Uh, GCOV is an example for Linux. There's a Cobertura, Bullseye, commercial and open source variations. So good unit tests, really, you want to make sure that they are achieving adequate coverage. To me, adequate coverage means at least 100% statement coverage and 100% decision coverage. Now, if you're listening to me right now and going, I have the slightest idea what he's talking about. Next week, I will be doing a free webinar, 30-minute, one-key-idea webinar, where I will give a demonstration of the use of GCOV an open source Linux code coverage tool to achieve 100% statement and decision coverage in testing. So tune in for that if you want to see what that looks like. Or encourage your programmer buddies to tune in for that, and they can see how it works and do it themselves. Now, that I think is a good minimum standard for code coverage. It should be 100% statement and branch coverage. But just because you've achieved 100% statement and branch coverage doesn't mean that you've actually designed proper tests. It is possible to execute code that has defects in it and not see failures because of the way that your tests are designed. So I would hope that if you can encourage your developers to tune in for that webinar next week, as well as tuning in yourself, you can also encourage them to do something like um, do some studying on black box test design, maybe come to one of our black box bugathons that we're running around the country, uh, have us come in and run a black box bugathon, or better yet, our testing for programmers course, because uh, just giving developers code coverage tools and static analysis tools and unit testing tools and assuming, yay, they've got tools, um, they're great, is as foolish as, you know, grabbing one of each tool at Home Depot, drum, dumping it on the front yard of an empty lot with a bunch of lumber, assembling random people and telling them, build a house. You've got all the tools and the materials you need. So people need to know what they're doing. Now, even when people do know what they're doing with unit testing, even when developers do it well, according to Capers Jones's studies, unit testing tops out at about 50% defect detection effectiveness. Now, you might say, hmm, 50%, that doesn't sound so great. Well, 50% is half. And so ask yourself as a tester, would you like to get code that where half of the defects have been removed before it's given to you? Yeah, I know I would. Um, so I think uh, 
it's good. It's just that you don't want to put too much faith in it in the sense of, well, we don't have to worry about regression risk because we've got all these automated unit tests and they're in our continuous integration framework and they run every time we run the test. That's, uh, that's not a smart way of thinking about it because you're only going to get 50% of the defects that way. Now, what can you do as a tester? Well, learn how to program if you don't already know how to program and learn how to do this white box type of testing, unit testing, static code analysis, so forth. Be a coach. That's a concept in Agile, being a coach, being a testing coach, being a quality coach. So learning how to use these tools, take advantage of them, help your developers take advantage of them, uh, you should do that. Don't be intimidated. Just because you don't have a technical background doesn't mean you can't learn this stuff. You absolutely can learn this stuff. There is no magic here. You don't have to be born a certain way to know this stuff. You don't have to be a guy to know this stuff either. Okay, this is uh, in spite of the fact that programming is um, a male dominated profession, that's just an accident. And it wasn't always that way. It was, in fact, the other way around. And one of the greatest pioneers in uh, programming was uh, Admiral Hopper, who was a woman. So, you know, if you're saying, I can't learn programming because you know, the boys won't let me in the club, I'm not technical, blah, blah, blah. That's nonsense. You can learn it. There's nothing really magical about it. Take your time. You'll learn it. It's kind of fun. It's like a puzzle. Now, getting into what would more traditionally be thought of as tester-oriented kind of stuff, uh, feature verification testing. There's two general types that we see with our clients here. Um, one is called acceptance test driven development or ATDD and the other is called behavior driven development or BDD and there's a family of tools around ATDD fitness is the one that we hear about the most frequently and there's a whole family of tools around BDD and it's cucumber, RSpec, Gherkin those are the kinds of things you hear people talking about when they're talking about BDD um, I'm not going to get into the subtle differences between them. Um, there are some, and um, they can matter. Uh, but uh, you know, we we have uh, clients that are using both. Though more frequently, we we find that uh, clients use one uh, or the other. Anecdotally, I will say that we have some clients that tried BDD had maintainability issues with it, switched to ATDD, and found that that worked better for them. I've heard that from more than one client. But I have heard from clients that are using BDD, and they're perfectly happy with it. Now, either one of these things, oh, well, excuse me, neither one of these things is going to require you to make any sort of commercial tool expenditure. There's plenty of open source stuff out there. Um, there's probably commercial stuff, too. I just don't know anybody who's using it. And honestly, I don't know why you would, because the open source stuff is quite mature. Uh, now, the JUnit unit testing kind of stuff is generally done by the programmers by themselves individually. ATDD and BDD are supposed to be collaborative. So the developers and the testers um, are involved in creating the tests. Ideally, business stakeholders like the product owner are also involved in defining the tests. 
or at least reviewing the tests. And that's the case with some of our more mature clients. Certainly, at the very least, they would need to review the test results. Now, ATDD and or BDD tests can be included in continuous integration frameworks, and some of our clients are. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes the reason that they're not is because of things like false positives and flaky tests. Another thing that can create problems is just how long it takes to run the tests. But it would be best if you had some of these things in your continuous integration frameworks uh, as a way of smoke testing the builds as they're being created. Now, GUI test automation, graphical user interface test automation. Lots and lots of open source and commercial tools out there for that, of course. Uh, usually when we hear people talking about open source GUI test automation, they're talking about Selenium, uh, though there are others. Um, UFT, Rational, Test Complete, there's way too many others out there that they even mentioned that are uh, the commercial tools. Um, now, if you're going to do this, if you're going to do graphical user interface test automation, there is a whole battlefield of landmines and traps that you can step on or fall into here. A lot of them have to do with problems with maintainability of your tests. There's two fairly common architectures that are used to try to create maintainable tests. Uh, using graphical user interface frameworks. These are data-driven and keyword-driven architectures. Now, data-driven and keyword-driven architectures can be used for all sorts of automation, including automation in an application program interface or a command line interface, or even via the data layer or some sort of report layer. Uh, so the architecture, the, the data-driven and or keyword-driven architectures are not GUI-specific, but they are widely advocated as a way of solving maintainability issues with graphical user interface um, automation. Now the trick here is make sure you have an experienced lead in charge of this if you're going to uh, kick off a graphical user interface automation effort. General rule of thumb is five plus years. This derives from the 10,000 hours to uh, master a complex subject rule which was popularized in uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. Now, some people have tried to refute that and have, have published counterexamples of it. Um, but I think still, as a general rule of thumb, if you find somebody who's been doing something um, seriously and intensively for five years, like automating graphical user interface tests, then they've probably achieved some level of mastery of it. And conversely, if you find somebody who's walking around, they've spent less than a year doing hands-on graphical user interface automation, and they're calling themselves an expert. Um, it's not polite to laugh at people, but personally, I would be tempted to laugh at somebody like that because they they have no idea how much they don't even know. Um, so don't call yourself an expert if you don't have a lot of experience in this. Become an expert. Spend the time to learn how to do it right. A lot of times when I hear about test automation problems, it has to do with a failed graphical user interface test automation effort. I could fill an entire hour-long webinar with horror stories of failed test automation efforts that happened because of testing through a graphical user interface. And each one of those 
would have cost the company at least $100,000 and or somebody's job. And many of them will have cost a lot more than that. So as I said, this is a serious minefield and serious traps. Uh, don't go walking around in it without knowing what you're doing. Now, performance testing is another um, place, <coughs> excuse me, another place where automation is very important. Um, generally, when people are talking about automation of um, the perform performance tests in Agile, what uh, I hear them talking about is JMeter, also OpenSTA is out there, and I hear about that occasionally. There are a lot of commercial tools. Many, many commercial tools out there. Um, now, one of the advantage of performance test automation is that the type of test results you're trying to evaluate have to do with things like throughput and uh, response time and resource utilization. You're not so much worried about are we getting the exact right answer on the screen right now. That ends up being a lot easier to to automate and uh, there tend to be a lot fewer maintenance problems. I don't tend to hear clients telling me about a performance test automation effort that they did that, that flew off the rails because of a maintenance issue. Now what can cause performance testing efforts to fly off the rails is assigning the job, the performance test automation job, to somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. Give them a tool and say, hey, go do the performance test and they haven't the slightest clue and um, they do it wrong or they do it right by accident, but then they misinterpret the results. So be careful with that. Um, your open source performance testing tools, if you find one you like, uh, before you make a real big commitment to it, uh, check and make sure that it's got a decent sized community behind it, because um, it has. it is the case that there have been some open source performance testing tools that have gone away. Um, a good thing, a good practice here that is not often done, but is, is definitely something that should be done, is at least with complex systems where performance is a big issue, get a performance modeling tool, some sort of capacity modeling tool like Hyperformix or something like that, and check your performance test results against your uh, modeling results to make sure that you uh, can have confidence in your, uh, your results. Now, uh, web services and service virtualization, these are other areas where there are tools out there. Parasoft has a, a tool set here, and CA has a tool. Uh, I forget the name of Parasoft's tool. The CA tool is called Lisa. Uh, it used to be from a company called ITKO, but um, uh, Computer Associates or CA bought them. Um, for open source, what we hear about typically is SOAP UI. Um, SOAP UI is a little flaky. You want to save your work while you're, you're developing tests with it. Uh, there's a commercial offering of SOAP UI as well, and I've had people tell me that the commercial offering is just as flaky as the open source offering, so I'm not really sure um, what the advantage of the commercial offering is. Now we also see uh, TestMaker and WebInject, um, but I've never had any clients mention that.
sorry, I had to turn something off there. Um, so compared to some of the other tools I've talked about, these seem to be fairly limited in their use. But I think um, this is probably because not everybody needs to use them. Um, what I found is that people who do need to use them do tend to have an awareness and they, they go out and find them. Now, dynamic analysis tools are uh, definitely underutilized, and that's unfortunate. Um, cer certainly, there are plenty of, uh, of um, reliability failures and performance issues that can happen because of the kind of problems that dynamic analysis uh, tools can find for you. Um, a lot of these dynamic analysis tools are built into the operating system. Um, and in some cases, you can compile dynamic analysis code into programs and create a, effectively an instrumented version of a program that will uh, uh, watch for certain kinds of problems. Um, so that can be potentially built into your um, uh, integrated development environment. There are open source tools. Uh, WinLeak is out there for PCs. There's a program called Valgrind for the Linux, Android, and Mac world. Uh, I've used Valgrind before, and uh, it's um, it, it's a, it's a nice tool. There are commercial tools as well. So this is something to, to look at, uh, especially if you know reliability and performance is important, which it is for a lot of apps. And you know if you're if you're operating in a mobile world, it's really important that you use resources like memory wisely because if you have memory leaks and other kinds of problems with memory management um, that's going to make your app and indeed the entire platform flaky now there are some test design tools out there some of them are useful so if you um, are doing pairwise testing you really need a tool to design those tests uh, the two open source tools that I've heard of most are PICT, P-I-C-T, and ACTS, A-C-T-S. Of the tool, I tend to favor the ACTS, the A-C-T-S tool. It's created by the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Nice little tool. Um, there are commercial tools. Honestly, I don't. again, this is another place I don't know why anybody would buy a commercial tool for this because the free ones are, are good. So I'm not sure what the, what the benefit of that would be. Um, it's also possible to build some um, model-based types of test systems. Um, we built one for one of our clients using an open source tool that's described out on, it's an article on our website. If you do a search on the rbcs-us.com website for Quality Goes Bananas, you'll find the description of it. I didn't make up that name, so don't blame me. There are some commercial test design tools out there, but most of the ones that I've seen uh, are designed to read a set of requirements and create tests from the requirements, and the requirements have to be formatted in a very, very particular way, um, which most of our clients don't do. So they're, you know, not particularly uh, useful. Uh, it's kind of like the joke about, you know, as useful as a, as a bicycle is to a fish. Now, scripting tools. I love scripting tools. These things are great. Um, and if you, as a tester, do not know how to write scripts, you should. You should learn how to do this. Not only is it very, very useful from a test automation point of view, it is also a great entryway into learning how to program. You learn how to script first, 
and then you can learn how to program from that. The scripting will teach you the fundamentals of, of syntax and being careful with syntax and if statements and looping constructs and those sort of things. And then you can move on to uh, the programming language. It's a great way to get in there. And it also uh, uh, teaches you uh, or uh, teaches you skills that you can use to create tests. Now, they're really great languages out there. I've used Ruby and uh, heard people say good things about Python. I've used the Tickle TK uh, combo, the various uh, Unix shells. If anything, we've got a, sort of an embarrassment of riches here where people get really uh, enamored with one particular language and they insist that that be the language that's always used. Um, so what is, what's best is for the organization to standardize on uh, one or two scripting languages for particular purposes and say, well, if we're doing this kind of scripting, we're going to use this language and, and everybody has to use it. Um, that will rub people, rub some people the wrong way if they are aficionados of a different scripting language. But from a maintainability of the assets perspective, um, definitely uh, the way to go. Now, scripts, scripts are programs. Um, they can be used to construct very large, complex, and sophisticated systems. I have done this myself. Um, but like any kind of program, they have to be built very carefully. Otherwise, you're going to run into some serious maintainability issues. All right, so there you go. There's an overview of the kind of benefits that you can get from test automation in an agile world. Do it right, and there's a lot of great things that can happen. Um, you don't have to have a lot of money. Um, there's a lot of open source stuff out there, so take advantage of that. Now, remember, free to download doesn't mean free to use. Okay, I did a post on my blog and LinkedIn the other day. Uh, the post was titled, Psst, Want a Free Puppy? So you think free test tool, think, yep, free, just like a free puppy, okay? Somebody gives you a puppy for free. You still got to feed it. You got to take it to the vet. It's got to get shots. Every now and then it'll get sick and then go to the vet, and the vet's going to charge you money to make your pet, make your puppy uh, healthy again. And sometimes the puppy, when, he's a, when he or she is a puppy, sometimes the puppy's going to crap in the house. That's going to smell really bad, and you're going to have to clean it up. And in the worst case, something really sad happens and the puppy goes away. So all of those kinds of things can happen in a metaphorical sense with automation. Whether the tool is free or not, it doesn't matter. Just like a puppy, whether you paid two, $3,000 to buy some purebred puppy or whether you got it on the side of the road from somebody who was giving away puppies, okay, however much you paid, that doesn't change the fact that it's going to cost you something to own. Your time, for sure, and opportunity costs. Okay? While you're doing the automation, you're not doing something else. So keep that in mind. Um, watch out for outlandish claims made by tool vendors. This is another place where I could probably do an hour-long webinar filled with nothing but stories of promises made to my clients by tool vendors that turned out not to come true. Now, sometimes those didn't come true because my client did it wrong. And sure, that's usually not the case that the client was entirely blameless. They often had some contribution to it. But certainly, there are outlandish claims out there. So be skeptical. Now, use car salesperson, test tool salesperson, 
Now, don't want to say they're necessarily the same, but what I would say is maintain a healthy degree of skepticism. And one thing to remember, the vendor's demo will always work. You don't learn anything from the vendor's demo. Except that if the vendor's demo doesn't work, in that rare case, you know that you shouldn't just walk away, you should run away. But the vendor's demo is carefully crafted to send a particular message. The vendor's demo is not carefully crafted to demonstrate the tool's ability to solve your specific problem. That's what a pilot's for. So remember to do pilots. And you can build your own tools if you want, but last resort. It should be a last resort. And really, with all of the open source stuff that's out there now, you know, when I find clients that are building their own test tools, I my first question is why? What open source options did you evaluate first before you decided that you had to build your own tool? And generally, the answer is we didn't. We didn't evaluate open source options. And that's, that's bad. Um, so you don't have to build it yourself. In most cases, some cases you can take pieces of open source stuff and build stuff from it. So if you decide I absolutely have to build something because nothing out there will work, okay, that's fine. But use the open source stuff as the uh, way that you build it. Um, one of the things that you may very well have to do is build some sort of integration or glue um, between tools, especially if you're using a, a large collection of, of different tools and you want to make them all work together. So that's some place where, um, where you uh, should think about uh, uh, building your own uh, stuff. Okay, well, I hope this has given you a useful overview. I'm going to put the advertisement up here um, while we do the Q&A. Uh, I want to um, uh, point out that uh, our, the LinkedIn uh, coordinates and YouTube coordinates are down there as well as uh, uh, the blog address isn't on there, but it's easy enough to find. It's rbcs-us.com slash blog. Um, so there's lots of, of good stuff out there, good information out there, uh, a lot of it free. Uh, in some cases, it's explaining what kind of services we offer because, um, you know, we do have to uh, uh, keep the lights on. Um, so keep in mind, you know, if you do need help, uh, we would uh, appreciate the opportunity to bid on any sort of uh, of work that uh, you might need. Um, the email address there, info at rbcs-us.com. Uh, basically, what we do is, is training, consulting, and expert services. So if you've got pain in the area of testing and you want some help, send us an email. Let us know what your pain is, and we'll tell you uh, if we can help you solve it. The answer is usually yes. All right, so um, got a uh, um, comment um, from Gabriel here. Um, he says, uh, LOL, automated GUI testing is what I've done for our company the last 10 years using QTP. We're in the middle of switching to test complete. No questions, just a comment. I absolutely love your candidness. <laughs> so thank you, Gabriel. Um, yeah, I you know I, this is this is the way I, I do business. Um, I I, t I call it like I see it, and sometimes that ruffles people's feathers. Um, but I feel like it's it's better to just be to be absolutely frank. Um, you know, especially when I'm working working with a client. By the way, I look at it as they 
paid me for my my advice and opinions and help and i do nobody any favors by pulling punches with them um so yeah <laughs> if, if you're wondering what it's like to work with me um it's exactly like it just sounded that that you know i i tell you the, the unvarnished truth as i see it and sometimes as i said that can ruffle feathers but i think it's the the uh, shortest route to the the truth is to tell <laughs> the truth without any varnish on it so thank you for the comment gabriel um let me know if you uh, be okay with me quoting you on that with that on our social media um Doug asks, any recommendations for responsive design testing? Um, I have in this presentation rattled off some names of some tools. Um, and I want to be clear about this. Those were not recommendations. Those were just names that I've heard associated with stuff that my client is my clients are doing names that my client has mentioned in context of good experiences or sometimes bad experiences. Um, I don't do tool recommendations. Um, and the reason why is that you let, let's, let's look at it from an analogy point of view. If you, um, if you called up a doctor, Let's say it was one of these medical shows, you know, I, I don't know, I don't watch them, but I mean, I, I know they're on TV and on the radio and so forth. You call up a doctor on one of these medical shows and um, you say, do you have a recommendation for chemotherapy for solid uh, uh, tumors? You know, any doctor who would say, Oh yeah, you need to go out and get yourself shot up, 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 up you know, whatever, whatever the you know chemo of, of uh, preference is for this doctor. Any doctor that would say that, you, you know, you know, is a quack. Okay. So um, similarly, I feel like to give a client or a fellow test professional recommendations for a particular tool without having spent any time studying their problem is a a similar form of quackery so uh sorry to to disappoint here doug but i'm not gonna not gonna try this i'm happy to come in and work with you and your organization to try to help you figure out what the right tool would be the starting point for that process is always identifying your goals requirements and constraints and only once you've identified your goals, requirements, and constraints should you start looking at tools. Okay. Um, wow, well, I'm going to try to pronounce this name, and I hope I don't get it wrong. Miora? M-I-O-A-R-A? Miora? Miora? Hope I didn't mangle your name, Miora. Um asks would it be possible to get the presentation thank you in advance yes the presentation is on the website so if you go out to the website and uh, uh, find the uh, webinars um, page uh, I forget exactly how to get there but it's pretty easy to find and so one one menu down from the home page find the webinar page and um, uh, you'll be able to find the the presentation there in addition the presentation uh, is being recorded 
And so when this presentation is done, one of the things I'm going to be doing is taking that recording and uh, converting it over to an MP4 file and plopping an advertisement on the start of it and um, putting it on our YouTube channel. So anybody who missed this presentation can uh, go out and give it a listen. Um, Follow-on question from Miora. She asked, do you happen to have other webinars regarding test automation for beginners? Um, I have done other webinars on various kinds of test automation, and you can go to the YouTube channel and take a look. Um, so uh, that's, that's one option. We also offer a course on testing and uh, um, uh, programming or uh, databases, programming and databases for uh, testers. So uh, that's something we can do for you. Oh, and I see the name <laughs> Miora says Mio is easier. So good. I will now call you Mio. Uh, let's see what else we got here. We've got questions. Um, I had another question from Carla here. Could you recommend an open source automation tool for um, non-web, non-mobile Eclipse-based applications? Uh, no, as I said, I really can't help with that without coming in and taking a look. Um, you went on, Carlos, say, to be specific regarding Eclipse-based applications, I'm referring to regression slash black box slash functional automated testing. Our developers typically use JUnit for unit testing. Um, so, um, yeah, I, what, I, what I'm going to suggest is that before you start hunting around for tools and before you go asking random people on the Internet like me for recommendations, that you sit down and uh, write down your goals and you write down your requirements, talk to the different stakeholders, figure out what your requirements are. As a general rule of thumb, if you've found less than two dozen requirements for your automation, you probably haven't thought about it enough. Don't just think of functional requirements, think of non-functional requirements, document those. Then at that point, you're ready to actually go out and start looking at the different tools that are out there. Uh, and there's a lot. So you know, be ready to, to weigh each tool against the requirements that you come up with and create a short list. And once you get your short list, then that's time to uh, uh, try a pilot. All right. So there are shortcuts. Those shortcuts go to bad places. Shortcuts like asking somebody on the Internet, even somebody who's maybe perceived to be an expert like me, um, and they say, oh, well, you should use blah, 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 and then, you know, I'll go off and do it. I can tell you as a consultant, that's, that's the beginning of a lot of sad stories. I've heard a lot of sad automation stories where that first step, goals, requirements, constraints, that was ignored and um, bad things happened, wailing and gnashing of teeth. Um, Carla also reported that there were some audio problems, but nobody else did report those, and we had a lot of people on, so I'm assuming that that would probably be a problem that that you had with um, um, your connection to the Internet, temporary problem. Now, Linda says, regarding the automation ROI, we had a few questions on this. we got one from Amit coming up here, too. Well, let's go back to that slide. Linda says, is it $30 maintenance per year or per update? This is the average cost of maintenance per update. It's completely made up. 
I want to be, you know, I want to reiterate that it is entire. This is entirely a made-up number, but it's the average cost to update a test. So when when a test needs to be updated, on average, it costs this much. So basically, what you do is you keep track of, you know, when do we, how many times do we have to update, um, and um, how much did it cost us to update? How many test cases were updated? And you'll be able to figure out this issues of frequency and average cost of updating the tests. And uh, yeah, this this is actually this is a fairly encouraging picture. If your picture looked like this, the the only thing that I would say that I would be like looking at this and go, hmm, that this would worry me. The only part that would worry me is that the cost of execution is a little high. Automated execution is a little high here. Um, which would tend to indicate flaky tests and false positives. But it's not like toxically high. I've seen it where the cost of execution is almost as high as the cost of doing the test manually just because you get so many false positives and, and flaky test results. Um, the thing that gets really bad is when the maintenance spikes up higher than what's shown there and, and even to the point where it's perhaps as high as, as the cost of developing new tests. and. And then the frequency of maintenance is like every time we get a build. I mean, I've had clients tell me that where one client told me, well, we would run our BDD tests all the time, except that um, every, every all the time, like every time we get a build, so we get two builds a day and it takes us about two days to go through our test results. So we only run the BDD test twice a week. I'm like, why do you, why does it take you two days to go through your test results? Like, well, we you know tend to get a lot of failures that turn out to be just things that were associated with a change that was made. Uh, yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> All right, let's see. Amit says, uh, as for the automation ROI, are you counting time per run? Does this calculation take into consideration the test becoming stale and therefore less valuable to run? Um, so, yes, the, the time to run is part of the cost of execution. That's the effort required to start the test and the effort required to analyze the results of the test. As far as the test becoming stale and less valuable to run, if that triggers a maintenance effort, then that is shown here. Um, but it is indeed a separate component of this where it's, it's, it, it's possible that the – well, let me back up a little – the cost of executing a test, even an exceptionally well-designed automated test, can never be zero. It will always be greater than zero. The value of running a test, manual or automated, can be zero, and it can be less than zero. So just because a test can be automated doesn't mean it should be automated. Um, so you want to look very carefully at this issue of staleness, and uh, that's that's a good point to bring up. I mean, it's... Keep in mind that in this presentation, I was like, you know, a mile wide and an inch deep. But certainly in our training where we talk about um, principles of good automation design and so forth, that's that's an important part of what you got to look at. <clears throat> Excuse me. So Mary says, many systems deploy after hours on Fridays. Is there a way to include tester happiness in the automated test ROI? If automated tests save to several hours of testing, testers will be a lot happier getting done at 7 p.m. rather than midnight. <laughs> um, yeah, well, you know, certainly uh, satisfaction is um, 
um, something that's worth looking at. And you know, I, I do recommend that when you're when you're looking at the at a test process, including the automation uh, of the tests, that stakeholder satisfaction is one of the things that you look at because people who are dissatisfied with the process for whatever reason and obviously being kept at work until midnight on a Friday would be a dissatisfying experience. Um, people who are dissatisfied at their work don't work as well. You know, they just don't do as good work. So, uh, yeah, that's that's something that uh, definitely should be looked at. Uh, let's see, Amit had a follow-on here. He, said, he says, regarding my previous question, the diminishing value of tests is due to the pesticide paradox, to borrow the ISDQB terminology. Right. Oh, 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 I see what you're saying. Okay. No, now this is interesting then. So the pesticide paradox says that the more frequently we repeat a test, the fewer bugs it will find. And that's true, and that's an important thing. Um, but the fact that a test does not find bugs does not make it not worth running. Regression tests are about risk mitigation. Regression tests are typically not about finding bugs because of the pesticide paradox. So you do not want to measure your ROI of your automated regression tests based on the number of bugs they find. I've seen clients do this, and then they're walking around scratching their heads, and they're all dissatisfied, like, how come we're not getting any bugs out of our regression tests? It's like, dude, pesticide paradox. You're not getting any bugs out of your regression test because you're not supposed to get bugs out of your regression test unless your code has horrible maintainability problems because statistically, according to Capers Jones' studies, only about 7% of bugs are regression bugs. So you don't want to look at you don't want to look at, at bug finding effectiveness as a way of measuring your whether a test uh, belongs in your automated regression test suite. This is a matter of how much risk mitigation are we getting out of it. Now, other kinds of tests, automated tests, can be measured in terms of bug finding effectiveness. Um, so, you know, like your, your static analysis tools, um, your unit tests, uh, your performance tests, and so forth. Yeah, but just be careful with your automated regression tests. Uh, let's see, Stefano says, um, hi, Rex, about free of charge TA. TA, test automation tools, I'd like to mention one that may not be uh, much known in the U.S., Robot Framework. Um, the, uh, this is a, has thesis work of a Nokia network summer trainee in Finland and has grown up to be an open source project with a good community. If someone does acceptance testing or ATDD, then check it out. We use it in combination with Jenkins. I have heard of it. Um, Though it's true, it's not not as widely known here. So, I'll, uh, yeah, I'll throw that name out there again. Um, I don't want to make any recommendations here because I don't know anybody's specific situation. But uh, you know, it's, it's worth looking at. Um. <clears throat> Amit says, for a complex use case, is there a way to reduce the code complexity or is the best I can do to distribute the complexity to multiple classes or functions that will be calling each other? Um, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, um, 
So I guess there's a couple ways of addressing this. Um, so let me, I'm going to back up a little from what I was about to say. First off, I would say that you want to make sure that you're properly distinguishing between um, what uh, is, is referred to as uh, accidental um, complexity versus essential complexity. Um, this goes back to an article called No Silver Bullets by, jeez, uh, let me see, Fred Brooks, Mythical Man Month guy. Um, so in the, the article, No Silver Bullets, what um, Brooks said basically is there are two reasons that programming is hard. Programming is hard, in other words, complex, in some cases because we make it complex by accident. So accidental complexity. And he gave us an example of this using machine language or assembly language rather than programming with a higher level language like a procedural language or a object-oriented language. That would be an example of making making life harder for yourself when it didn't have to be. Um, but essential complexity is complexity that's in the program and in the process of programming just because what you're dealing with is hard. I mean, if you're writing software to control a... Um, a missile or a rocket um, to keep it pointed in the right direction and so forth. It's just, it's a hard problem. Uh, if you're writing software to try to take advantage of small differences in prices in various pools of, of assets on uh, the stock market, which is what high volume trading programs do, it's just hard. You know, so yeah, I mean, in that case, you just have to use you know this this idea of hierarchical decomposition and breaking down the problem into smaller and smaller pieces until you finally each piece is a fairly tractable thing uh alashia asks what's the name of that webinar again it's called one key idea uh code coverage using gcov g-c-o-v go out to the webinar page on our website and you'll see that that's the webinar schedule for next week. Hope to see you there. Um, Amit says, where would you recommend a tester to learn about unit testing? Unless working on production code, there's not much of an opportunity to do actual unit tests and see what works best for you. Uh, well, I mean, we have, we have uh, uh, a... Uh, testing for programmers course that we do that talks a lot about unit testing and how to do it. Um, so, you know, that's an option taking, taking a course like ours. Um, you know, another thing is to buy, see if you can find a book on TDD that's actually got exercises in it and you work through the exercise and so forth and, 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 and do it. That'd be another way to do it. Uh, Jennifer asks, do you have a suggestion on how to get started with automated testing for mainframe and COBOL-based applications? Um, it's a little harder because the tools are not as widespread, but they're still out there. So, again, you know, what I would say is do your analysis, figure out what your goals, requirements, and constraints are, and then go and start doing your research on the Internet and see what you can find. 
Um, as I said, it's a little harder and that there's, uh, there are fewer tools. Um, but one thing to keep in mind is that you can automate through application program interfaces. You can automate through command line interfaces. Um, you can automate through scripting like JCL. You can automate through data layers, so going directly to your database. Um, you can automate through reports. So you can write scripts that cause reports to be run and the data is stored in the reports and you analyze the data that's in the reports. So don't just think, well, you know, I got to test it through the GUI because um, you don't. Um, let's see. Carlos says, thanks for the robot framework open source reference. I'll add this to my list of research. Um, okay, take a look at it. But as I said before, make sure that you know what your requirements are before you start looking at tools. Now Mary says, do I hear a bird singing in the background? But you might. My window is open. Um, and there was a bird sitting on an oak tree right outside the window. I'm, I'm surprised that you could hear that. I, I barely heard it, but... So sorry, sorry if the background noise is a little confusing, but, uh, oh, Linda says, I hear it too. I kept looking out my window. <laughs> yeah, okay, well, good microphone, I guess. Um, <laughs> somebody was complaining about the quality of the sound earlier, but I guess the microphone must be pretty good and the sound must be pretty good too. But you can hear that bird. It's a little bird and it's, he's a good 30 feet away from the window. <laughs> Oh, Mary says, I like the bird. It's just barely audible. Richard said, I hear it too. It added a nice note. Great. I'll remember. Leave the windows open. <laughs> Listen to the bird. Um, let's see. Aaron says, do you have a webinar on test metrics, cost of developing, executing, maintaining, maintaining tests, uh, et cetera? Uh, we do have a course that we can run on that, on testing metrics. Um, that can be done as an on-site course, and it can also be done as a virtual course, um, and it can be done as a public course. So if you wanted it as an on-site on -site course, we can come and deliver it for you and your team on how to create metrics. It's a one-day course, one-day hands-on workshop. Um, unlike some courses you might be familiar with, this, this course actually results in you creating metrics that you would then use. So we encourage our clients to do prep work so that we can come in and it's more like a, a one-day consulting session that results in defining usable metrics. Um, if you want a virtual class or a public class of that, um, we're just putting this out now. It says, we've had this rule for a long time, and we haven't done a real good job of publicizing it. And the rule is bring four friends. Basically, if you and four other people come to us and say, we want you to run a public class, Here's where we want it. We'll do it anywhere in the United States. Same thing with virtual class. You and four friends say, we're willing to commit, run the virtual class. We'll, we'll run it. We'll take the risk to see whether we can find anybody else to attract to the course, but we will we will run them at, at our usual rate. Um, hmm. 
Now, Laura said, I had audio problems too. I had long fade outs. And Amit said there were some metallic sounds during the talk. Huh. Yeah, weird. Okay, I, I don't know what that, that was. Apparently, it's better now. <laughs> Bill says, I have seagulls near my window, but I also heard your bird. <laughs> Stefan says, I thought you had a bird as a pet uh, at home, Rex. Um, oh, Aaron says, bird or squeaky chair? Thanks for the excellent webinar. Um, well, there's the, there's the chair. So there is there can be a little bit of squeak in the chair, but there was a bird out there. I'm, I'm guessing some of you heard that. Scott says, I didn't have any audio problems on my end. Okay, well, in that case, if you did not have any audio problems, it must have been connectivity issues that other people were having. Um, and Casper says, no audio problems either. Yeah, as for um, pet birds, uh, no, I do not have pet birds. Um, now I have a question coming up here. Um, I'm not going to name names because I don't want to embarrass anybody, but somebody asked me, do you provide PMI PDUs for your recorded YouTube videos? So th this is an indication of someone not listening during the beginning because I said no PDUs are for uh, live attendance only. We can't provide PDUs for recorded webinars. That's PMI's rule. That's not ours. If you have a issue with that rule, please address it to, to PMI. We would love to give PDUs for recorded webinars, but we're not allowed to. Uh, Osgore says, superb webinar indeed. My team deeply appreciates the content of these webinars. Oz, well, thank you, Oz. Uh, do you mind if I uh, quote you on that? That would be uh, that would be very handy for me if uh, I could uh, post that out there on our uh, website. Ah, yes, you may. Okay, cool. Thanks. Appreciate that. Um, Scott says, uh, thank you, Rex. I have to troubleshoot a power issue in my lab. I enjoyed the webinar. Thank you. Good luck with the power issue. Don't electrocute yourself. I'll see you back here next week. Um, Tom says, do you need to write a manual test case prior to developing an automated test case or script? During the maintenance, do you need to maintain the manual test case? <sighs> um, and approaches differ here. But I would say that there is no no one hard and fast rule. There might be circumstances where the writing of the test prior to developing the automated test as a standalone manual test makes sense. And there are times where it wouldn't make any sense. Um, so, for example, if you're doing ATDD, um, you might not actually have a written test. And if you go out and you look at, uh, I did a post on this on our blog site and on our web on LinkedIn uh I think it was last week about what it's like to be in our agile class and if you if you go and look at that it shows uh the progression from taking a marketing requirements document and writing a use case and then writing acceptance criteria for it and then ultimately creating designing tests and creating ATDD tests for it and nowhere in that process did we have what would be called a, a manual test script uh, so you know you don't you don't have to uh, if there's a business need for it, 
for example, you're an FDA regulated organization, you need to be able to provide proof to auditors, then it might make sense to do that. Um, but uh, I, I think uh, there's certainly no general rule that says you need to do that. Um, okay, let's see, I had a uh, comment from Bill here. Uh, I've attended a number of your webinars over the past years, and I think this was one of the best ones. Uh, maybe because I'm currently building an automation system from scratch, and many of the things that you said are things I've, been, I've told management about. Not expecting too much and not a silver bullet, and maintenance will be a big effort. That's kind of things I said, yeah. Yes, I am the QA manager and manage myself. <laughs> I do all manual testing, planning, regression, now developing an automation environment, and soon to maintain that too, along with learning and testing. A whole new accounting product we're releasing. I may be looking for a silver bullet soon. LOL. Thank you. Uh, you're quite welcome, Bill. Um, certainly, uh, I, I feel your pain, man. I've, I've been there. Um, so, uh, again, this is another great comment. If you don't mind uh, me quoting you, I'd appreciate that. Um Let's see, Mary says, uh, these freely offered webinars are my steady and reliable source for continuing education and testing. I always learn something new and I know the content comes from a place of extensive experience. Well, thank you for that. Um, appreciate the kind words there and uh, I'm glad we're able to help. Um, again, I do need to mention that, uh, you know, we're happy to do these as a service to the testing community. Um, but um, we would hope that for those of you who are out there enjoying these webinars when it comes time for you to uh, go and pick a vendor who can help you out with some sort of testing problem, please do uh, um, give us a chance to bid on it. I don't ask, you know, I don't, I don't want to guarantee, well, we're going to give you all of our testing business. I know it doesn't work that way, but I would appreciate it if those of you who are listening to my voice when you are out looking for training, consulting, or expert services in the area of testing that you give us a chance to bid. Um, all right, cool. Uh, Bill says, no problem. You can quote me, so I will. Uh, Carla says, this is, this was surely one of the best webinars. Lots of golden nuggets for QA testing. Cool. More great stuff. And again, Carla, if you don't mind, I'd like to quote you on that. So let me know if that's a problem or let me know if you're okay with it. Um, Elaine, Elaine says regarded, um, uh, regarding um, uh, audio problems, she said, I had the same problem, uh, but after switching computers, it worked. Yeah, that, that can, connectivity issues can be computer specific for sure. Um, yeah, Carla says, sure, quote me. So thank you, Carla. Richard says, not sure how to phrase my question, but how much testing should you do on your automated tests <laughs> since the tests themselves can have bugs since it's code? Yes, indeed. Um, and that's a whole separate discussion that I didn't want to get into. But uh, uh, the short answer is yes, your, your tests, your automated tests, um, should generally be considered suspect the first few times they're run. Um, and having a process for testing them does make a lot of sense. 
without a doubt. Now, some of these are, are more susceptible to issues than others. So your automated uh, tests using, say, you know, BDD, ATDD, graphical user interface focused testing, those sort of things, probably are more, more subject to having bugs in them versus, say, a static code analysis where, and the only thing with the static code analysis is, you know, you, you somehow you use the wrong rule set. Um, oh, uh, so Carla had a clarification about her earlier question regarding the um, getting the requirements right. She said the question was just to get uh, to get me started about it, tools. Um, uh, point uh, proof of concept would have to be done. Yes, absolutely. Got to remember that proof of concept. Uh, let's see. Uh, a video asks. What do you think for the tester to do in Agile all of the following? Manual testing, automation testing, deployment, UAT, and maybe also training. So I guess you're asking, should the tester plan to be involved in all of these things in an Agile environment? Um, theoretically, um, it would be great if you could, but in a lot of organizations there are special skills required for those sort of things and so it's not really possible for uh for one tester to do that uh carla says automated testing is a full-time job continuous maintenance from release to release yeah I, I would say that if you're in an agile environment and you're trying to keep all of your automated regression tests and other kinds of automated tests up and running that's a that's a full-time job Um, Sergita asks, is Selenium a better functional automation tool than UFT for agile automation testing? The answer is, I don't know. For your organization, I can't tell you without actually going in and working with you guys. I can tell you how to find the answer, and the way to find the answer is, again, identify your constraints, your requirements, and your goals, and do a careful evaluation of Selenium and UFT and and other tools, um, which of which there are dozens out there, and figure out which one is actually right for you. And any any other approach to getting automation in, in up and running in an organization is the wrong way to do it. Um, let's see, Ovidio asks, planning coming to any conferences in Europe in the next period? In fact, in fact, I am. Uh, I am going to be speaking at the Code Space Conference in Kiev. May 31st, June 1st, and June 2nd. In a video, I'm guessing from your name that you are in Romania, and Romania is not very far from Kiev. But then again, those of you who are in Europe, if you're in Europe, you're not very far from Kiev because Europe just isn't that big uh, in terms of like compared to Australia or the United States. Um, a video says, right on that, you met you some years ago. That's right. So, so if you're in Europe and you want to hear me talk, Come to um, um, the um, uh, conference, Code Space Conference, um, and uh, you can hear me there. I'm also going to be doing a series of um, of um, expert test manager trainings throughout Europe in June in, I believe, Istanbul, Budapest, and Paris. So uh, if you are advanced test manager, you want to move on to expert test manager, come and see me. Uh, let's see. 
Um, Ivana says, and Ivana, good to hear from you again. I hope uh, all's going well since we last spoke. Oh, what was it, three or four months ago? Uh, she says, hi, Rex. Uh, this is a great opportunity for me to realize how much I don't know. Thanks a lot for that. <laughs> well, I hope it, it, it uh, you take that as inspiration to go and learn more rather than, oh, my God, there's so much I don't know. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Uh, we are out of time, I'm afraid. Um, so while there were other good uh, questions, we're really not going to be able to, to go much further. Um, certainly, uh, if you are interested, you could come to the session tonight. If I didn't get your question today, you can repose it then and I'll try to get to it. But I do need to stick more or less within our time constraints. So let me close the session up. Uh, remember that we run these free webinar sessions once a month. And once a month means there's one in every month. So this is the last week of this month. And next week is the first week of next month. So that's why there's one next week. So you go out to our website, rbcs-us.com, and you can sign up. You can also get signed up for our free newsletter there which will get you valuable discounts on consulting and training services and a newsletter that includes a featured article on software testing and quality and news about what we're up to. Uh, follow us on Twitter. You see the coordinates there and also Facebook. Um, the LinkedIn coordinates are there and uh, YouTube is there. Uh, count on seeing uh, four or five new things on Twitter and Facebook every day. Uh, one, at least one new thing on LinkedIn and our blog every day and a new uh, one or two new things on YouTube uh, every week, uh, if not more. And that would include current and previous recorded webinars. Those are all out on YouTube. And they're posted on our website. Uh, the blog is rbcs-us.com slash blog. Um, we offer these free resources as a service to the software testing community because at RBCS, we are a not-just-for-profit company. Don't forget, we also need to keep the lights on, so please make RBCS your preferred software testing provider vendor for any and all expert services, consulting, or training. So this concludes the webinar. Thanks to everyone for joining us, and I look forward to seeing you on subsequent webinars, for example, the coverage webinar next week. Thanks, all.